Hey everybody, and thanks for tuning in to Starting a Record Label. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Larry Livermore from Lookout Records. Uh, when I was younger and I first got into rock, I got into Green Day. Green Day was big. It wasn't Nirvana, which was super angry all the time. It had more of like a, a, a range to it. And I just fell in love with punk rock and pop punk and that kind of era. You know, once I listened to Green Day, I was like, do they have anything else? And sure enough, they did. They had uh, 1039 Smooth. Uh, they also had Kerplunk, but they were first signed for the first couple records to Lookout Records. And Larry Livermore was, I would say, maybe principal owner. But for the majority of the, at least the albums that I listened to and I kind of deem as classic, uh, they came from the era that Larry Livermore was not only the founder, but in charge. He also had a couple bands on the label that he was in. He was a part of what we uh, call the East Bay punk scene in the 80s and 90s, and it was just awesome to be able to talk to him. He'd actually written a book uh, a few years back that I, I grabbed as soon as it came out. It was called How to Ruin a Record Label. It actually says like half how to run slash how to ruin a record label. It's an awesome book. I'll, I'll link to it below. I think I have linked to it before. It goes through all the ups and the downs of an indie label, basically blasting to the stratosphere and then crashing back down. Bands on the label were Green Day, obviously, uh, Screeching Weasel, the Mr. T Experience, Operation Ivy, and then later Rancid, of course. It's just a lot of music that's near and dear to my heart, as well as the story is kind of a cheerjerker <laughs> at the end of the book. I encourage you to pick that up and take a listen, but for now, without further ado, Larry Livermore of Lookout Records. Thanks so much for kind of being a part of... Uh the the uh, podcast going on uh i was actually taken aback that you responded so quickly to be honest most people don't respond that quickly <laughs> well i don't know if you heard but there's this epidemic going on and nobody can go anywhere <laughs> so we're kind, of, we're kind of stuck in the house most of the time i've heard something about so that i don't know <laughs> you heard about it huh? yeah it's, it's a good opportunity to to catch up on conversations uh since we can't have as many in our own immediate environment as we might normally it's uh, good to talk with people in other places this is very true well my name is joshua smith uh, obviously you don't know me at all but um i am starting a record label this year obviously because of covid it slowed everything down and so i'm like well i just want to talk to a lot of industry people just to see like what they went through, some of their experiences and whatnot. And I bought your book a few years ago, uh, being a big fan of like the East Bay punk scene when I was growing up. And I love that book to death. And uh, thank you for writing it. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure to write it. And it's even a bigger pleasure to hear that people are reading it and enjoying it. Although I, it occurred to me when you asked uh, me to come on and talk about how to uh, do a record label that I mean, did you not read the book? Um, <laughs> it didn't turn out well in the end. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's got a double title, How to Run a Record Label, but also How to Ruin a Record Label. Mm. And sadly, uh, it, it did end up in the, in the dumpster, uh, although it had a good run for, for, for a while there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, though, like, the best kind of information is the kind that like, hey, here's some things that I didn't do completely right. And most of the record label books, because I think I have almost every record label book out there. I've been collecting them for years, hoping to start a record label. And uh, I've read most of them and they're just boring, baloney garbage half the time and a lot of stuff that's way out of date. But uh, 
hearing about the real relationships and the struggles that you went through was really good. Well, I think a lot of times when people write about record labels or bands for that matter, their, their agenda is primarily to, you know, sort of bask in the glory of it all. Say, Oh, this was so great. Too bad. You weren't there too bad. You missed out on it, but <laughs> you know, we were so awesome. And, and then it ended and that was the end of the scene too bad. Um, but yeah, I, as I, I sort of wrote at the, in the last chapter of mine, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to write the whole story. And I mean, as, as well as I was, could manage. And that meant turning a magnifying glass on, on myself as well. It's, if something goes wrong, you can't just say, oh, well, it, it ran out of time or so-and-so messed it all up. You have to you have to look at yourself and say, well, you know, maybe I did some right things, but I might have done some wrong things too. Let's look and see what what they were, if there's anything we can learn from it. Mm -hmm. Very true, very true. So uh, Joe from Don Giovanni on the on the book says, when Green Day and Nirvana were causing or uh, were causing kids to start bands, labels like Lookout were inspiring him, inspiring them to start record labels, and. From what I remember, uh, I was probably in like 94. I was probably in like fifth, sixth grade, and I just started getting into music or whatever. But uh, labels were kind of like a, a bad thing, kind of in an idea. But about that time when I started getting into to punk rock, labels started becoming like a good thing for some, some crazy reason. And Lookout was one of the best ones because you'd be like, hey, instead of saying like, when's this new band going to come out? You'd be like, oh, what's new on this, this label or that label, you know? Um, yeah, I think I think your perception of labels as being a bad thing would probably at least partly have come from the fact that when you're just a kid, just starting to get interested in music, your first exposure is mostly going to be to major labels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's kind of like McDonald's, even if even if you like their hamburgers, I don't think that many people have a real warm spot in their heart for the McDonald's Corporation. And are really fascinated about what the chairman of the board is, is having for lunch and uh, what he's, what him and his wife are doing. It's just not, <laughs> it's a, it's a machine. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, and this, this goes back a lot further, but it was kind of cooked into the perception of the public was, you know, back in the, when rock and roll was young in the 1950s and early sixties, uh, a lot of what the record companies did was just plain criminal. Uh, yeah. There's no nicer word to put about it. They would take unsophisticated performers, especially uh, especially black uh, performers, who at that time were laboring under a huge disadvantage because we still had institutionalized segregation in this country, and you couldn't even get a black performer couldn't even get played on the radio. Um, so they would like sign deals with these these performers and basically take all of the credit, all of the money, and you know, even if they sold a million records, the, the poor guy would or, or lady would be like back out on the street the next day and not even know what happened. Oh, yeah, I was famous for a few weeks there. But I would, you know, even an example, the uh, uh, big mama Thornton that wrote, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think I think she was probably still playing in bars long after Elvis made himself a you know, international superstar singing this, the song that she wrote. Um, that that was quite common, and it didn't only happen to black performers. It happened to 
most white performers do to naive ones at least, and most of them were naive because that's one of the one of the things uh, one of the problems musicians run into regularly is that their attitude is I, I don't want to think about business. I, if I want to think about business, I go to accounting school. I just want to play my music, man. Yeah. And the trouble is, you know, dealing with the business is part of it. You can't really get away from it. Uh, but because of that sort of blinkered attitude, a whole lot of musicians just got treated really badly. You got ripped off and, you know, the public had with good reason, a, a very bad impression of the big bad music corporations and the, the talent scouts and the managers and the executives because a lot of, a, a lot of ripoffs happened and a lot of musicians were, were naive. They, they just wanted to play their music and they didn't want to think about business. Mm. And as a result, a lot got taken advantage of. And it just kind of became this impression with the public that, oh, the musicians are cool, but the record companies are bad. And so, but, you know, most people, their main interest is in, I want to hear the good music. So they didn't really think too much about it. They, when they went shopping, they didn't say, Oh, I'm going to buy this record because it's on Warner Brothers, but I'm not going to buy this record because it's on Columbia. Um, that may, might have happened sometimes, especially if they had a superstar performer on one label. They say, oh, well, this must be a good label. I'll, buy, I'll try some of the other stuff. But that was rare. Uh, when the indie labels started coming along, and I, I think there's one other note I should make is that at one time they were all indie labels. Mm -hmm. uh, even Even the giant corporations that we think of now as being the, the, you know, mega corporations and cyclopses and all of that. Most of them started out with, with somebody pressing up a, a, a thousand records and selling them out of the trunk of his car. And it's just the ones that, that grew, they grew and they grew. And, um, by the time that people like myself were coming up, it was not that likely that a regular guy could, could uh, or, 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 woman could do that anymore it had become so built up and so so structured but the you know one of the outgrowths of the punk scene and the diy whole diy music movement was you could do so, you could do things like that yourself it was way underground mm -hmm. and if it hadn't been so underground the big companies probably would have crushed us right from the start they just didn't even notice since we were so far below the radar there's another element that though that I need to, I think it's really vital to bring up, which something was started happening in the 60s and 70s, and really even more so in the 80s, is technology changed. That people began getting tools that allowed them to do things that before you could only pay a lot of money to an expert, a technician to do for you. Um, most people I know nowadays are too young to remember before Xerox machines, but that was an actual crucial thing. When, when I was a kid, there was no such thing. Now, the only place that had anything where you could do mass printing was a, typically a school or a business would have a thing called a, I think a mimeograph. Yeah. And it, uh, it was like a really elaborate machine full of stinky chemicals and it only printed in blue ink. Um, and no regular guy could afford to to use one of those. So when I when I was in seventh grade um, in the fifties, I decided I wanted to start my own underground school newspaper. 
a satire of the official one. I literally had to type it by hand on a manual typewriter with carbon paper. So I could make that way I could make one original and two copies. And then they would just, I would pass them around. I served my, I print my print run was three, but I would pass them <laughs> hand to hand around the, around the school and, until the teacher or the principal caught up with it, confiscated it. That, that was how we had to operate. And obviously you're not gonna get too big at that. When Xerox machines started coming along, suddenly any, anybody with an ax to grind or anybody with a, a passion to explore could start their own magazine or, or a newspaper, fanzine, whatever you want to call it. And that's one of the things that I did. And that's one of the main things that grew into Lookout Records, Lookout Magazine first, then Lookout Records. And it was also a lesson to me. I, you know, when I first started thinking of having a record label, I thought, well, I've been doing this magazine for a few years and, you know, it can be a pain, but at the same time, I went from 50 copies up to thousands of copies. I'm sure, why wouldn't records work the same way? Uh, there was, there were reasons that they don't work exactly the same way, but the principle is similar. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we, you still had to go to a recording studio. That's, that's something that's changed even more since then. Now you can make records better than we did in, the, in your living room mm-hmm. uh, with your computer. Um, another thing that changed at that time was if you wanted to put color art on the cover of your record, you had to pay somebody a couple thousand dollars to do these elaborate photographic uh, separations in the in the lab. Um, you know, a few years later, uh, you could. I mean, that's why if you look at the early Lookout records, um, none of them are in full color mm. until 1990, uh, and that we had to pay an extra. You know, we had to pay more money to get the cover prepared for printing than we did for the actual recording. Oh wow. Um, but until then, you, you'll see some of our covers would have uh, little bits of color, but that was only done. That was done mechanically, where you just uh, mm. put a sheet over the, origi- the original black and white with a, a, a different color. Um, but if you wanted four color, no, it was like thousands of dollars. And then a couple years later, computers would just spit it out for virtually no extra charge. Mm. So things like that made it it possible for basically anybody to be their own record label. And I remember in the nineties, uh, right when we were starting to really hit our, our peak and talking to somebody about, about the future. And of course we had no idea exactly, but I said, I think in the future it's probably, you know, records and CDs and cassettes or, probably all going to be just, you know, novelties or disappear into history. It'll probably, music will probably be on some kind of microchip <laughs> or, or something. And uh, it was around that time that if you look at record label contracts, whether, whether major or indie, uh, they would start to, uh, in, used to be, they would say, we, we get the rights to any records. And then they would add a cassettes and they had contact this, but around somewhere in the nineties, you started at or any other technical means that should become known anywhere in the universe yeah the known universe clause <laughs> so that's awesome <laughs> so uh, ironically of course some of this technology would end up upending the whole the whole business 
And, and now you're in a situation where much of what would have worked 10, 20, 30 years ago is kind of useless. Yeah. And uh, unless you just want to like run a boutique label where, well, actually I want to say something about that because, and I think I mentioned it in the book too, um, you know, there are people who do really fine labels. And I, I wish I, I wish I could come up with a, a name or two, but I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with where they do limited run presses. They do beautiful colored vinyl. They do exquisite covers and art. And they'll, you know, they'll often pick out a band that's kind of a cult favorite and they'll press a couple thousand and sell them all at a fairly high price. And everybody's happy because people, you know, they're they're they created a beautiful product, and people can put it in a, on their dis, on display in their living room, and may or may not ever actually play the record. But it's just it's just a beautiful piece of art to, to have. But that's a, a very different philosophy to what I why I got into the music business. Um, in fact, I didn't think I was getting into the music business. I thought I was just getting into music. I didn't realize it would turn into such a business. But my attitude was quite different. I didn't really care what color the vinyl was on, what if I had to hand leather the cover myself. My point was to make the music available to as many people as possible as in as reasonable and economical a way as possible. Mm. I didn't have any kind of pre-imposed limit. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to do a, a thousand copies or 500 copies or 1,000, 10,000. That was never my idea. My idea was to create a structure where I could, I would be able to produce as many records or cassettes or later CDs as people wanted, you know, whether that be a, a few hundred or a few million. And it was not, like I said, it was not a, a plan to become big in the music business. It was a plan to reach or to enable music to reach people that wouldn't otherwise hear it. Like what was going on in the East Bay of, uh, of San Francisco and uh, in, in Berkeley in 1987 was really magical and very special to those of us who were there. But it was li literally a couple hundred of us. You know, I mean, there were probably most people even in the city of Berkeley itself, even people that lived down the block from Gilman Street, the majority of them probably never heard of us because we weren't in local papers. Mm weren't on the radio to 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 those of us who were regulars at Gilman the the music and the culture and the life that surrounded it was was everything it was just like you know all encompassing and all encompassing it just was like we were constantly going around like I can't believe this is happening this is so amazing that we're part of this but nobody else knew and if we hadn't figured out a way to get that music and that art and those ideas out to a wider public, you know, eventually it would have faded a couple of years, two, three, four years, it probably would have faded away. And maybe someday somebody would have wrote a book or done a magazine article on it. Like, Oh, there was this cool little scene in Berkeley that disappeared. Mm -hmm. But instead, you know, we, we are, we were able to reach millions of people. And I always thought it was kind of crazy that like I lived I lived outside Chicago, so it was close enough to whenever someone asks, I'm like, oh, I'm from outside Chicago. But like it was technically Indiana in a town called Boone Grove. So it was like farmy town, whatever. And so and in high school, coming into this and having like 
a group of people that were into this kind of music and seeing the records coming from coming from the East Bay, like before the Internet really hit. How did that all happen? Because that's that blows my mind to this day. Like, how did we get these records from that little area over there that just blew up? Well, I often uh, I'm not sure I'm not the only one who who wonders about that sometimes. How did we even live before the internet? How did anything happen? There's a guy called Tom Jennings who was a regular. He also founded the uh, magazine Homo Corp, but he was a regular in Gilman in the early years. And one day he told me, oh yeah, we got this uh, experiment going on where we're trying to teach computers to talk to each other. And I was like, what would they even say? Uh, but that was the early form of the internet. That was, that was actually before Gilman, that was 1985. And by about 1993, 94, you know, we were, we were on the internet, but we had already built up our uh, kind of connections by, you know, we used to have to mail everything, you know. Mm. I give an example. Um, around ni- early 90s, um, we had done the first Screeching Weasel record, which is from out your way in Chicago. Mm. And they had to drive out to California and, and recorded and then went through the mixing and mastering and all. But for their second one, uh, uh, Ben, the leader of the band, did not want to come out to California and he didn't want to come into the mix, mixing room or any of that. He wanted to just hand it over to other people. So it, it turned into this ridiculous process that lasted probably the better part of a year where the studio engineer in Indiana would mix it and then he would send a cassette to Ben in Chicago by mail. And, and then Ben would send the cassette to me out in California with a note, notes or phone conversations about what's wrong with it and what needed to be fixed. And then I would have to explain to the engineer back in Indiana about what needed to be done. And then the whole process would repeat multiple times. And, as you know, mailing a cassette from one side of the country to the other, you're looking at like three days each time. And and then trying to explain over by either by letter, which also takes a few days, or a phone call, what exactly, how, how to fix the guitars or whatever the, the so-called problem was. You know, contrast that to a couple of years ago, um, I put together a record for some some people, and I never left my room. I mean, the whole thing was done on the computer. I, I would I would say to this band out in uh, Colorado, "I can you send me a song?" And the next few days later, here comes a song, you know, fully mixed and everything, and just like that, I mean, I accumulated songs from twelve different bands, and you're not sixteen, I think, Josh, but I was just a. Uh, it was just done mm-hmm. like that. And, um, you know, similarly, I, you know, uh, Don Giovanni just re-released a bunch of stuff by my old band. Uh, again, never had to, to leave my, my room or leave my computer. So, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, well, that's not as romantic as, as piling everybody into a van and driving across the country and sleeping on floors and eating beans and all which may be true in some ways, but it also, you know, it's an indication of how much things have changed 
And it's also why I would caution anybody that's coming to me for advice about how to start a record label nowadays. I probably don't really have that much advice that, that is relevant. I can tell you how it was done at one time. I am not sure that I could tell you. Well, I can tell you maybe some general principles, but certainly not the basic technology of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I know that people are still putting out records, and I know that some people are still selling a lot of records and making making a lot of money. Although when I say records, I don't mean vinyl records or whatever. I mean creating songs and putting them out to the public. You know, I don't think uh, I haven't seen Taylor Swift at the at lining up at the poorhouse anytime lately. Uh, and she, you know, there are many there are many performers who are doing as well as ever. But this is not an area of expertise for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the people who will suffer are the ones who think, "Oh yeah, well, well vinyl's going to come back and save the day," or "I'm only going to I'm going to do a cassette only label because that's like keeping it cool and underground." Yeah, well, that, that's that's fun, and that's a nice hobby, and it might even be a, a nice little enterprise, but that's basically when you're focusing on the object, the artifact, not the music. Because mm-hmm. basically, I, I know vinyl has made a big comeback compared to when it was almost dead at the end of the 90s, but it's still just this tiny fraction. I mean, the vast majority of uh, people under the age of 40 or 50 may never even seen a record player, let alone know how to operate one. And I don't think that's going to change any any more than, uh, you know, people are going to go back to the kind of put your finger in the dial and dial the telephones and they, they weigh about 20 pounds that, that we used to have when I was a kid mm. or the ones that were even a little, that my parents had where you had to turn a crank and call the operator to make a phone call. Just uh, probably not going to happen, even though they're kind of cool to look at. So, you know, people people are mad about the whole streaming thing and the the digital audio thing, but you know, I don't think getting mad is going <laughs> to is going to help anybody. You know, if, unless you just want something to go on a crusade about and maybe get on the internet and rant and rave about it. But when you started, you just did seven inches. And then you moved on eventually to CDs and why not? Because that could well, become we, a newer thing, right? Well, when we started, we did seven inches and some people said, and when we started doing our first uh, 12 inches, some people said, Oh, look out selling out going corporate, going commercial. <laughs> um, but there was never anything, you know, religious or spiritual or sacred about the seven inch record that we had committed ourselves to. We did seven inches at the beginning because that's what we could afford to do. It was the only thing available to us. I, I'm, uh, I remember this is kind of a comparison, but uh, I don't know if you, how familiar you are with the whole garage band kind of scene where people try to play in this really rough, ragged style that sounds really cheaply recorded, even if they're, even if they have the money to pay for really good recording, they deliberately make it sound like as if it was like recorded in a basement someplace mm. uh, through tin cans. And similarly, they will buy these instruments that were popular back in the 1960s. Um, there's there's a, a guitar called the Silvertone, mm-hmm. for example. When I was a teenager, that was basically 
what everybody that wanted to play in a band got was a silver tone guitar from Sears Roebuck, which I don't know how many of your listeners will even remember Sears Roebuck, but they were a big shop, you know, big uh, department store at that time. Um, it was a, a cheap, junky guitar, but it was what people could afford, mm. especially where I lived in, you know, a working class neighborhood. And similarly, the kinds of amps and stuff, they, they made a really distorted kind of crappy sound. And then 30, 40 years later, you got these music, young musicians like, I want to sound like those cool bands back in the 60s. So I'm going to get really shitty equipment and really and pay a fortune for it. Mm. Those silver tone guitars probably cost 10 times now what they cost back oh, then. Sure. And, and we used to make fun of kids for playing silver. Even if we didn't have a guitar of our own, we'd make fun of, oh, you got one, you got yourself a Sears Roebuck guitar, did you? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Um, so they kind of missed the whole point. They, you know, people made cheap sounding records because that's all they could afford to make. And that's all they had the technology to make. And that was basically the same with our early seven inches. And, and they also sounded really cheap because we were recording on eight track, t- uh, eight track recording studios for, you know, what seemed like a fortune to us at the time. We, we, literally had a couple hours that we could afford to get the band in and out of the studio. So there wasn't a whole lot of messing around. Like, oh, I, can we retake that and re- remix the overdubs and all? No, it, it, that stuff was not happening. But, you know, the first few seven inches did well. And so we were very fortunate enough to be able to, to do some 12 inches. If we had not been able to, able to, if we had not been able to start doing 12 inches, we probably, that would have been the end of us. We would have made some, a few more seven inches and then gone out of business mm. because it's extremely hard to make much of, of a profit of, at all on, on seven inches. You, you make a thousand of them and sell them all. I mean, you know, you, you got your money back and a little bit left over. And by the time you give something to the band, you know, and that, and that whole time, you know, unless you've got a, another sort of day job, you know, you're you're basically back right back where you started. The, the twelve inches didn't did in those days make a substantial profit, and that's what enabled us to start growing. And eventually, started doing cassettes. At the, I think about eighty eight or eighty nine, we started doing cassettes because that was the new thing. And uh, and then CDs about nineteen ninety. Of course, that really unleashed a firestorm in, among the punk community because CDs were supposedly the work of Satan. Uh, um, even a lot of mainstream industry people did not like them. Ironic thing was that they, before long, they were cheaper to make than records, and, and could could hold twice as much money. Excuse me, music twice as much music. But I, I Freudian slipped there because <laughs> the whole the whole money thing was one of the reasons the punks hated the CDs was that. The record companies were re- repressing CDs of all of the old uh, vinyl records from the earlier years, and then charging twice as much for oh, them. Yeah. So you know the, the the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan record you could have bought for for, for four or five bucks a few a few years ago suddenly was on a CD for ten or fifteen bucks, mm. and um, so the, the punks there was a real a lot of pressure like oh but the cd will hold 73 minutes of, of music 
So you got to fill it all up or else you're ripping off the public. And that was a, that was a expensive and probably artistic mistake that we made, that I made. Um, I, I would, I felt guilty just putting a regular 12 inch length record onto a, onto a CD. So I would always insist that there be extra tracks and I can give you at least two examples of uh, both with Green Day and with uh, Operation Ivy, which were our two biggest sellers. When we made those, when we turned them into CDs, I again insisted that we put the seven inches and compilation tracks and things on, add them on for bonus tracks. Um, I realized a few years later, two things. One, that as much as people love a band like Operation Ivy or Green Day Fruit, um, not most people don't want to listen to like 20 songs in a row, even by their favorite band. There's a reason that albums have 10 or 12 songs or 14 songs. Um, and, you know, from a purely commercial standpoint, you know, those extra, those extra tracks that we tacked on to the, to the Green Day uh, CD or the Operation Ivy CD, once those bands became popular, we could have made another yeah. LP of each of those and probably sold a million of each of those. And it would probably have been a better record in terms of, you know, the attention span of the listener. Mm-hmm. You know, then people would have two Operation Ivy albums and they would probably love both of them. Yeah. I- but that was a, you know, that was when I, one of the many times I shouldn't have listened to the punks. <laughs> but at the same time, without the punks and without a lot of the DIY punk philosophy, none of this would have happened in the first place. So, you win some, you lose some. I, I never would have dreamed that it would have been possible for me to start my own label and, and reach millions of people if it hadn't been for the punk way of doing mm-hmm. things. So, you know, in some ways it had a happy ending. And, you know, what's, what's another million or two million records sold anyway in the long <laughs> run? I mean, luckily both bands did all right, even without it. And, and we did all right, too, at least for a while. I was uh, I was trying to reread your book before we had the interview, and I didn't make it all the way through again. But uh, I got to this point where you'd you know it started talking about I think you'd moved to the new building, and you're like, uh, well, I guess this has to be kind of an uh, I, I can't remember how Molly put it like an appropriate thing or an, an actual label or something like that as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to being in like your your bedroom, and uh, you professional. Professional. professional there you go and. Uh, you're saying like, oh, I better, I guess I better make an LLC, and it's kind of like blew my mind because I was like, that's the first thing I did. <laughs> it's like make an LLC and like trademark my name. Was your name trademarked too? No, no, no. We we didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And again, it was kind of foolish. It's not not so much that you should try to cash on every possible thing, mm. but the fact that if you don't, somebody else will. Yeah, like it at. I mean, we're fortunate that we we have a lot of goodwill and we didn't make too many enemies, mm-hmm. but people could have messed with us a lot more than they did uh, because we didn't bother with a whole lot of... In fact, we didn't even bother with contracts for the first few years. Oh, wow. So, actually, it was actually one of our uh, recording engineers who did a lot of the early stuff and he had, had some experience in the bigger music business in addition to his punk music experience. 
And I was saying, no, I don't believe in contracts. That's not punk. And he, he's saying, well, for your own sake and the band's sake, you really owe it to them and yourself to do it. And I said, yeah, but it's so corporate. And he said, well, no, really what a contract is, is that you're just setting down on paper what it is exactly that you expect. And the band in turn is doing the same. You know, they may have a very, very different idea of what a label is supposed to do for them. And you may have a very different idea of how a label is supposed to operate or the band is supposed to operate. It doesn't mean either one is right or wrong. It just means that if you find out a year or two down the road that you totally have different values, then you got a problem and you're going to have, you know, either somebody suing somebody or somebody walking off in a, in a huff. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like they say about if you're getting married, um, it's a good plan to talk with your wife or husband ahead of time and say, you know, to make sure you have similar values. Yeah. You know, are we going to have a joint checking account or are we going to have separate accounts? Are, are we going to live in the suburbs or are we going to live in the city? Are we going to have kids or are we not going to have kids? Because if you get married and, and find out a couple of years down the road that you have totally opposite views mm -hmm. and one of you cannot possibly live in the suburbs and the other you cannot possibly li live in the city, well, you know, that's kind of the thing that you run into with, with bands all the time and, and with labels. A lot, a lot of bands, they kind of have this imaginary idea that they saw in a movie somewhere where Mr. Talent Scout comes and signs them up and next thing you know, a truck shows up in front of their house with millions of dollars and that's how, that's how it's when they don't have to do anything except play the music. Yeah. And I suppose some labels probably think, some, think something similar. Yeah. Um, so Kevin was extremely correct, in, and I thank him for that. We never made a big, elaborate contract, but we, we had some simple principles that we set down in paper, and some, some bands didn't like that, and a couple just refused to deal with it. But we didn't deal with a lot of other stuff, like publishing, which is an essential part of the music business, uh, and trademarks and copyrights, as you mentioned. Uh, so... Well, for instance, uh, the famous Lookout label with the smiling face, uh, my original partner in Lookout, David Hayes, created that. But because it was never trademarked, it ended up getting sold to somebody else who had nothing to do with it. And as far as I know, he never got anything out of that, oh, wow. uh, which is, you know, he's quite unhappy about it. I don't, I don't blame him at all. But I never owned that. He, neither he nor I ever owned that trademark to that to that design or to most of the other stuff that we did which was which was foolish you know, you know if, uh, i mean a, a lot of people especially the punks will will gripe at me and say oh you're a big sellout guy you made a bunch of money from your your big corporate indie label and it's true that i did a lot better than i ever expected to thanks mostly to green day and operation ivy to a lesser, several other bands did really well also. But, you know, if I were to sit here, I could look, it's one of those glass half full and glass half empty. I, I, I mentioned it a couple times in the book, if I were to sit down and enumerate all of the ways that I could have made, well, not I, but the label and the artist both could have made a lot more money. You know, you're talking about many, many millions yeah. 
um, the, the label at one time was probably worth um, best estimate 30 to 50 million dollars and we didn't collect any of that it was, it was basically evaporated uh, I based that on do you familiar with I'm sure the, the label sub yeah. they were they were a similar sized label to us um, and they had one very famous record in their catalog um, which was the first Nirvana record mm. we had three very famous records in ours, and we were about the same size as them. But they were sold for, I, I don't know, I've heard a lot of versions, but somewhere in the 30 to $50 million range. Yeah. And I think that might have only been for half of it. So, well, we didn't, we didn't collect any of that. And eventually, it became worthless. So there you go. <laughs> uh, like you'd mentioned. You win some, you lose some. <laughs> uh, You had mentioned uh, bands kind of not, well, you know, we were just talking about contracts being kind of like a bad thing kind of for them. And uh, you'd mentioned in the book, like bands not having a very good split of the royalties between other members of the band. I know that I know that even uh, you two, I'm sure that not all of the members contribute as much as some all of them. But like they're all the royalty royalties are equal. Did you ever have like talks with the bands to try to convince them to be like, Hey, to be a little bit more even handed. I had talks with the bands all the time, at least the ones that were willing to talk. Mm. Uh, most of them were most of, most of them actually like to ask me questions and ask for advice, especially since quite a few of them were, were very young and very inexperienced. There were some though that just wanted to do it their own way. And it didn't matter what my opinion was. And so eventually I just kept it to myself However, that, that, the issue you bring up is one that was dealt with in you know, all of our standard contracts once we started having them. And, and the deal was, I, I wrote it myself, was that either the band had to tell me who got what out of the band's share of the money, or automatically we would pay it equally to each member of the band. Um, I think that's, like, for instance, Green Day, even though... The, the labor is not probably split completely equally in terms of songwriting and stuff. They always split theirs three ways. Mm -hmm. uh, Operation Ivy also did. A couple of other bands had a very elaborate uh, breakdown, like this guy gets 10%, this guy gets 20 I get 50 that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, that's their business. And mm -hmm. if the people want to play in the band and under those terms... And they tell they all agree on it. And they, if they did that, they all had to sign an agreement saying this is how we want it. Then that's fine. There is a possible problem with the we'll split it three ways or four ways because what what happens if or when the band membership changes? Yeah. Now with Green Day, it was it was simple. They their first record would look out. They had three members. Then they changed drummers for the second record. So it was split three ways between. Who played on each record mm -hmm. operation ivy you know they kept i mean basically operation ivy sold all of their records after they broke up so that was no big issue either but, but as far as i i mean as long as i was there they always split it four ways um but that was uh that was just one of several things that i would always you know i felt that it was because of being a somewhat older person who had a little bit more experience I felt that was part of my job as a record label to, to 
to try to look out for the, see, that's where part of where the name came from, to look out for their, the band's interests, yeah. because a lot of times they would not, they would just not think of it. I, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times I would say, hey guys, maybe you should think about uh, how you want to handle your business affairs in the future if the band gets any bigger. And they say, oh man, we don't want to think about business. We just want to play our music. Even Operation Ivy told me that at one time. And so they weren't big into having band agreements. <laughs> they had a band agreement to split everything each That's it. way. And they had an agreement that whatever they did, they all had to agree on, like whether they were going to do a record or what was going to be on it or that, that was all settled within band meetings. Mm. And that, they were one of the bands that um, didn't matter what I said, you know, I would say, so, Hey, operation, I'd be ready to, do this and they'd say no we had a band meeting we're going to do this and that was that there was no sense arguing about it mm. but they were smart guys and very talented guys it also it might have it might have meant why they broke up when they did though too because they were so rigid about having this consensus as opposed to let's vote on it or anything it was more like we all have to agree on everything so when they ran into a problem Oh, I guess we have to break up. Yeah. And, you know, uh, whether, but I, I was thinking of a number of other bands. So that, uh, I think, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't think I want to name names, but certain bands were kind of like, you know, they just did not, they did not want to deal with the business end of things at all, other than that they would call up. Oh, we're out of money. Do, you, do we have any money coming? <laughs> and I don't mean they were like trying to hustle us. It was just like they knew that they got paid every three months. And and every three months we would give them a statement of how many they'd sold and how much they had coming. So I'd get a call in between, like from a, a band, and they like, oh yeah, well, we're out of money. Are we gonna get any money uh next next time? And sometimes, of course, we would say, oh, yeah, I got your statement right here. You're gonna, you got like $10,000 coming. And could we get an advance on that? And, and, you know, and usually we were able to do that. But I would uh, often say to bands like that, look, you got to, you know, start thinking of things in, you know, a more practical way to, to make plans. You know, things are not probably always going to work the same way they are now. How are you going to, you know, do it in the future? And a lot of times they would just not want to cope with it. So I would often uh, try to create structures and and organizations for them, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. You know, there were certain bands where members developed a, a drug problem and all of the money suddenly went there. And then the other members would be like, wait, where's our money? You know, oh, sorry, it went up somebody's nose. Yeah. Uh, what, what can I do about that? Yeah, hmm. uh, you know, you guys have to figure out a structure for how to deal within the band with that. I cannot come and babysit all of your members to make sure that, you know, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to, unless I got specific advice to the contrary, that's why I wanted to split the money equally among each member. Yeah. I would say to them also, you know, have a, have a band fund. You know, if your van breaks down, you need new new amps, whatever. You got to have some money set aside, rather than just 
oh my God, what are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to cancel our gigs because we don't have any money and, the, and everything's broken. In the later years, was that stuff kind of just written for them? Like, sure, here you go. Kind of deal when you guys did have quite a bit coming in. <laughs> um, it was it was quite common when things started getting really big for for us to to advance money to to certain bands, especially ones that were very active, like the bands that were touring all the time. You know, they would run up bills and be out on the road, and there would be expenses. Um, and we would, you know, we would know that plenty of money was going to be coming in soon to cover it because our distributor, Mordam Records, was, you know, perfect, flawless. They never missed the payment. In fact, they would sometimes advance us money too ahead of time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really that, that big of a problem to advance money to, to bands, especially, I mean, most labels, I think, pay only every six months. We did every three months. And, and, uh, more than paid us every, every month. So we knew months ahead of time what, what, what money would be coming in. The, where I didn't, the situation I didn't want to get into was with a band that kept running up more and more bills again, yeah. and usually because somebody had a, a personal problem and, and, you know, endlessly be and have them endlessly be in debt because that not only is it a bad way to, run a relationship but strangely enough uh, they end up resenting you even though you're helping them they kind of get bitter like oh we never oh, we never get our bill paid off we always owe you money so usually we would never advance money more than you know one payment period at a time mm. are you still uh probably with the exception of maybe one or so people are you still pretty good uh friends with a lot of the people that were in the scene that are still around? Well, it's hard to say. And, and that's, I, I try to write about that a bit in my book too. It's hard to, it's not always easy to say, you know, where the friend part leaves off and the business relationship begins. And it was one of the things that really stressed me out about the label towards the end is when it started, I was, either friends or acquaintances with, with pretty much everybody that had anything to do with the label. You know, we were all mostly all people that just hung out together in the same club and in the same scene. And it was never, you know, nobody ever expected to make any money out of it. And it was, it was several years before it, it started to become obvious that certain people were only interested in being on the label because they thought they could sell records and make money. Mm-hmm. I tried to avoid those kind of relationships altogether. You know, a lot of times starting in the early nineties, people would say, Oh, you know, put out our record. We sound just like green day and we'll, we could sell We could sell a million records easy. And, you know, right away, no, I'm not interested. We already have a green day and I'm interested in bands that are part of our scene that want to do the kind of things that we're doing. Um, but, some of the relationships did change people that were friends to begin with or kind of that I met uh, was the idea of, Hey, I'd like to do a record with you, but I didn't know you before, but I got, I got along with her really well. So we became friends, but at the same time, we also became business partners. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's kind of hard to, uh, 
to quantify or qualify, you don't you don't always know. And people change too. I'm not saying just other people. I change too. Things that I might have been willing to put up with at one time, I would want to put up with later, and vice and vice versa. Um, uh, another, I, I know it's a long answer to a short question, but the, uh, the another aspect of it is that, as you, I, I mentioned a second ago, I I want I want I wanted to think of us as having being business partners, not being the label up here and the artist down here, or any you know. Basically, I, I wanted a relationship in which if one side did well, the other side. Did. We, we're, we're putting out a record. It, uh, the old-fashioned way of looking at it is like, we're going to get this big company to spend a lot of money on us and make us famous. Uh, you know, they're trying, the, the band is trying to get something out of the label. Um, from the start, the model I had was we're, you know, we're two different people or, or entities, but we have a common interest and we're going to do this together. And if the band does well, the label does well, the label does well, the band does well. And so there's, we're not like trying to get something out of each other. We're trying to help each other do well. And for the most part, that worked. But when I started really hating the business side of it was when I started seeing that to a certain number of people, I was just the guy that had control over the money that they wanted and that they didn't care if, their demands hurt the label. Mm -hmm. They just wanted what they wanted for themselves. And if that, if the label went broke, well, so what they got what they wanted. This was not, you know, what I had bargained for is not what I, what I wanted. Mm. You know, that's probably the kind of relationship that a lot of bands have with major labels. Cause they, in those cases, they can say, Oh, well, if we get a couple million out of Warner brothers, so what, even if we flop Warner brothers, isn't going to go broke. Mm -hmm somebody got a couple million out of us and flop we're yes well we don't exist anymore and yet i was starting to run into that um, attitude with at least a couple of our artists and it was very discouraging so in answer to your long ago asked question um i in i get along well with almost everybody that i'm still in touch with but i'm not in touch with everybody a lot you know, a lot of things have changed. People have moved all over the country and all over the world, and some have died. Um, a few have moved on into sort of different scenes or different styles of music where I'm just not likely to run into them. But of those who were the heart and, and core of the, of the music scene in the early days of Gilman and the early days of Lookout, um, it's almost always good to see them or hear from them, whether in person or on the internet or occasionally like a couple years ago, they did a, a, a lookout reunion at Gilman where they got together a lot of the old bands that hadn't played together in 20 years or more. And, you know, that was pretty awesome. You got to see a bunch of, of people and you know, it's like really astounding. Like some of the bands were just as good as ever or better, even if they hadn't played since 1990. Mm -hmm. I think I saw some of that. Wasn't that on uh, some of someone would put some of that on YouTube? I believe uh, I believe most of it's on there uh, somewhere. Mm. 
That's kind of cool because I haven't, you know, I have kids now and I went to college. And so obviously all this stuff afterwards. So, I, you know, me going out to shows is not as often as what it was. But I think I remember seeing the Mr. T experience probably in 2003 ish or something. That was the last time I think I saw them. They are they are still active. One of the few, although it's only the one original member, Frank. as is often the case with some of these old time bands. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It was, what was kind of weird is like. You take like the DIY like eth- like ethic of that of what you were just talking about, and uh, and at the same time, I, it's not just from like punkish you know culture that I hear this from. It's from everywhere that like you know music doesn't have you know you shouldn't ha- be able to make a million dollars off your music. You should just you know barely make basically be barely either making a living or giving it away for free. Which but it seemed mm-hmm. to me like the people kind of that you were talking about in the book or people that you would run into might have that kind of ideal and what they were saying, but then be coming at you on the other side being like, why aren't you kind of supporting me or, you know, putting me on the label or whatever, kind of like an expectation of <laughs> getting. I something. did. I did get that, especially uh, when some of our bands from Gilman started having some success. I would have other bands from the area who played at Gilman coming to me. Well, why aren't we on your label? Should we be on your label? And you know, and sometimes it would just be an intangible thing. No, you're you're not my style of music. You know, you don't represent what I want on Lookout. Luckily, a couple of years later, Fat came along and um, took a bunch of those guys mm-hmm. and did very well with them because that was where they fit. Yeah, but. In, in 1988 or so, I did not know where they fit. I just knew they didn't fit on Lookout. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have heard of a band called No Use for a Name. Um, they they were desperate to get on Lookout, and I just something wasn't right. And they went into Fat when Fat started a couple of years later and sold a ton of records, probably more than they ever would have sold on Lookout. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there was there was that. Um, you know, it was it was part of the reason that I, I I wanted to go away from it. But I think I might have lost the track of your what question exactly you were asking. Oh no, I think I was just um, asking. Like, basically, I'm probably making a statement. Like, if it's funny. Oh, it's kind know, of funny. Like, you know, these people over here, are like, oh, uh, uh, money, you know, and art shouldn't be mixed together. Uh-huh. But then they come kind of towards you when I, I get what you're <laughs> saying. Yeah, no, you're. There's a couple aspects of that that I would want to mention. And one is that um, a lot of these people were, who were in the early bands, you're talking about teenagers in very early 20-somethings, a lot of whom were still living with their parents or living in punk houses for practically nothing. And your attitude towards money, as I'm sure you will have found as you grew up and got a family and everything, you know, it, it, it necessarily has to change unless maybe you're inherited a bunch of money or something. You, If you got to take care of yourself, you're going to have a slightly different attitude once you got a kid, for example, than you had when you were sleeping on the floor of a bunk house. Um, and so that's, that's just normal. And that's one of the reasons that I was always trying to convince the bands to be at least a little bit more businesslike in their, in their planning. You know, they would say, Oh, we don't need any money. We just want to play music. But, you know, and I say, yes, but, you know, you won't always be that that way. And another aspect to consider is that, and this is a, it's kind of a downside of the music business because it tends to be that either 
you make a lot of money or almost none at all. And that's probably not a, an ideal way of doing things. I mean, I don't begrudge anybody that if somebody sells 10 million records and, and becomes very rich as a result of, of that, well, good, good for them. They don't, you know, they did the work and they probably, what you don't see usually when you see a band that comes out of nowhere and sells 10 million records is the five or 10 or 20 years that they put in before that learning to play and practicing and playing for offspring are a good example. Uh, I mentioned them in my, my book. They were, uh, they've been playing for 12 years, I think already before this and they were still playing the tiny crowds of 10 or 20 people at Gilman just the, just the year before they had their big hit, you know, all of a sudden they were multimillionaires. And, but it was not, I mean, I was amazed that they hadn't given up long before and that they stuck it out. So you can't begrudge somebody becoming really rich if they did the work and they make a product, a song, a record that people want. At the same time, though, and this is probably the, the more you know political economic side of it, I would, I would like to see a world where maybe the, the biggest bands made a little bit less. You know, still they could still be rich, you know, even very rich, but where the regular average bands made at least a, a you know a, a decent wage mm-hmm. enough you know at least that was at least as good if they were working at a a regular menial job maybe not the, a high class or professional job but at least you know enough to live yeah. on that um, but even that gets tricky because I think you and I both know not not all bands are are particularly good. There's a lot of good a lot of good bands that don't get as much attention and credit as they deserve, but there are a lot of bands that, while the people in them are maybe having fun and their friends may enjoy listening to it, you know, most people don't want to hear them. It's just a sad case. You know, neither of my bands has ever become popular, and as a result, I don't feel like I'm entitled to make a bunch of money from from being in either of the two bands I was in. I would Naturally, I would love it to become very popular and have everybody say, oh, I love your band and, you know, and buy all my, my records. But that has not happened. And I don't feel like I'm entitled to it just because I spent a lot of years playing music and stuff. Well, not everybody's music is popular. Not everybody's paintings mm-hmm. or everybody's books are popular. It's just the way it is. So, I'm, I, you know, I, I do run into a certain number of, musicians who like i've been playing music all my life and i'm in i deserve to make a living from it well i don't know (laughs) if that's true or not (laughs) it's like if you paint houses for a living and nobody likes the way you paint um are you entitled to make no matter how good how long you've been painting are you entitled to make a good living from it or not you had mentioned on uh i think on one of your blogs I could be wrong uh, about you, the potato man and the lookouts making uh, kind of a bit of a comeback a little bit through online streaming. Uh, what's your take on, on Spotify and streaming? I know we talked about seven inches earlier, 12 inches and then CDs streaming. I mean, it's been around for a little bit, but that's the new kind of way. How do you feel about that? Well, I, and this is where I get into the territory where I don't have enough, enough expertise. Um, I know uh, I know Joe over at uh, Don Giovanni has written 
and spoken out quite a bit against organizations like Spotify. Mm-hmm. I'm also aware that although they pay royalty, they pay very, very small royalties. But I'm not in a position to know how fair or unfair that is. What The only thing I really do know, or at least think I know, is that that's the technology that we're dealing with today. And whether people like it or not, they're going to kind of have to find a way to, to navigate. Mm-hmm. And obviously, some people are, are doing so. I don't, I don't see, you know, maybe I just don't have enough imagination or enough technical knowledge. But I don't see a way that somebody is going to subvert that whole structure and and take us back in a time machine to where everything was physical products. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I could be. But I know even just speaking for myself, and this might might be because I'm, I'm older now and I don't really want to accumulate a bunch of things. I'm more interested in, you know, emptying my house out of things because I just... Um, well, I was, might sound a bit morbid, but I had to empty the uh, house out from a couple of uh, relatives when they died, and it was like a nightmare. It was like 30, 40 years of stuff that they just couldn't throw away. Yeah. And, and it was because it was all precious. So I had to take it all to the dumpster myself. And, you know, not the worst thing in the world, but depressing and sad. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to collect a bunch of records and CDs anymore. Um, I'm happy to listen to music on, online or on the internet or uh, MP3s, what, whatever. Whatever is easy for me, that, uh, you know, that might sound selfish, but I think that probably reflects the attitude of most people who like music. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't need a record or a CD um, to, to sit and look at and study. I mean, some people will, but I think they're a small minority. Most people just want to be able to snap their fingers or touch a button and music comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, whereas, you know, people who make records for a living might say, but we won't make any money if you don't buy physical products. And that's also true. I don't have an answer for them. And uh, I would say probably what they need to do is to to figure out something a, a, a different approach. Mm-hmm. That's actually around the time around the time I left Lookout, and I was kind of trying to give some advice to the people who were taken over after I left. And I don't know, this might sound weird or cynical or something, but I said I have a feeling the way things are going in the music business that in a few years you're not going to be able to make that much money out of uh, records or CDs anymore. And that probably a huge amount of the money is going to, a, a larger amount is going to come from, from merchandising, mm-hmm. like from t-shirts or other, other stuff. I mean, I was, I, I had only a very simplistic view of it, but I think nowadays I would call that branding. <laughs> um, and that, that, what the successful company eventually would be doing would be selling a whole whole package, you know, with videos, uh, t-shirts, uh, shoelaces, whatever. And, um, you know, and maybe, like I say, maybe it sounds cynical, but I, you have to, to deal with the world as it is, not as how you 
you wish it were. Yeah. Oh, it's back again. Gosh, dang. Sorry about that. I only have like one and a half more questions. I saw. Well, I was, I was, uh, I was talking about the whole 360 deal. Yes. Which, like I asked you, you know, I obviously you do. And, um, those are, you know, people speak out almost violently against that idea. I don't think it's necessarily such a, a bad idea. It, it harkens back to, I guess, say when I was working with bands in the early days, that a lot of them just did not want to deal with the day-to-day business stuff and all. And at least in some cases, I think if the record label was looking out for them instead, you know, they, they could concentrate more on their music. And that, to me, is what a good 360 deal would, would look like. Um, nowadays, if you want to make money from your music, you're going to have to get it heard in other ways. And mm. for a while, they were saying, oh, now bands are going to have to uh, make all their money from concerts uh, and personal appearances the way they used to in the old days, which, which was true, even though they never made any money, you know, the idea of making a lot of money from from recordings was really a very brief period from about the ni- mid 1960s up until the uh, early 2000s. That was a, is like a brief golden age for people being able to make a lot of money for from recordings. But you know, people got used to it and said, "Oh, that's how it's supposed to be. It's always going to be that way." Well, it was never like that before. When I was a kid, it wasn't like that, mm-hmm. and. And it's not anymore. But the idea of saying, so now you got to do it the old fashioned way and get out and play a lot of shows. Well, that works for some, but not everybody could be on the road all the time. I'm thinking of one of my uh, my favorite performers of all time, Hank Williams Sr., who uh, back in the 1940s basically lived on the road going from town to town with his country band. And basically they were so poor they had to, ride in a station wagon with all their equipment up on the roof, except when it started raining, they'd have to bring it into the car and sit it on their laps. And they had to drive all night because they couldn't afford hotels. And at least according to some, the, you know, Hank having to sit with an amplifier on his lap on these 12-hour drives was gave him back trouble that in turn led to a, a, a painkiller addiction that, that ultimately killed him. And you know, not everybody's Hank Williams, not everybody tours like that, but not everybody can make a living touring. A lot of, I think probably in the future, a lot of the money for bands is going to come from having their music feature in movies and TV shows and in other, in other settings. And at one time I would have been a lot more against that, especially, and I'm still not too thrilled about music bands music being used in commercials but i'm not a hundred percent against it as i once was it's now it only bothers me if it's a commercial for something that i find offensive or you know just destructive yeah um but if there's a a product that the band likes and sincerely believes in why why not put their music in the ad but those are the kind of things that a 360 deal could handle and that most bands by themselves are not equipped to handle. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can get a manager who's going to take 15% or more of it all and that he can do that or she can do that. But that's, you know, again, luck of the draw. Yeah. Most, uh, not just any manager could manage that. 
So I think that's one possible direction that the music uh, industry is going. You know, who knows when or if there will be any touring of any kind again. So probably going to be seeing more virtual performances and online performances. Yeah. At, at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this year, um, I kind of had a plan to when I wanted to start this label to have it more based on content than just releasing music. Cause like you had been talking, there's a myriad of people that, you know, have day jobs and just put out some records and whatnot. And, uh, I don't feel like those necessarily support the bands and, because they're not 100% behind them all the time. They're just, you know, helping them put out an album. And being a recording engineer and a producer, I've got that angle down. And I wanted to start moving it to like a lot more content, a lot more video based, a lot more social media based, and get a kind of a plan going on there to kind of reach their fans through that. And I really, it's, it's sad to see the bands kind of the amount of bands and whatnot shrink over the last 10 years or so, when we still have, you know, some pop stars and artists that are it's a lot easier when it's only one person. So I wanted to see if there was a way to make, you know, like we have YouTube channels and whatnot of, you know, people having a fun time doing fun things and, and kind of having a band, having that as kind of like their, their main focus. And so it's kind of funny because at the beginning of the year, I was like, Oh, this is a novel idea. And then like, you know, start going into the COVID and then like bands are like, we can't do any touring anymore. It almost forces them into the stuff I've kind of been talking about for the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, you learn to, uh, you learn to deal with, uh, with what you're, what you're handed by life and the universe. And if you don't, somebody else will do it instead. Mm-hmm. One, one thing I've, I've observed also is that people's attention span continues to shrink. And yeah, I, I, I mean, it was traditionally you didn't do songs longer than three minutes, although my band has been guilty of it many times doing longer ones. And, and they didn't get there, no matter how good they were, they didn't get popular. And people would say, well, that's really long. Um, but many of the greatest rock and roll songs and soul songs, R&B songs of all time are, you know, two minutes, mm-hmm. two and a half at most, sometimes even less than two minutes. Nowadays, I think, you know, you're looking more and more at like a TikTok video of like 15 seconds. Oh, yeah. Um, And that doesn't mean that you only do 15 second bits. It means that a huge amount of your audience, that's about how long they're going to look at it. And then a certain percentage of them are going to say, oh, those kids look like they're having fun and it sounds cool. I'll check them out. Mm -hmm. Listen to something a little bit longer or look at at a video that's a little bit longer. but I think anybody who doesn't make that adjustment is probably going to have a problem, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, there is so much media available now. It's yes. just unimaginable. I grew up in a time, well, actually, I'm old enough to remember when my family didn't even have a television. But once we got one, we had three channels and they went off at, at, at midnight. So that was that was your whole choice of, of media. And then we had a daily newspaper that came every day. That was, that was, that was it. And, you know, now somebody could sit in a chair in their living room and never sleep and never eat and never leave that chair and have nonstop media of all kinds uh, presented to them and never see the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get somebody's attention and keep it, 
you're going to have to to be innovative and, ima- and use some imagination. Probably yeah. more than I, more, probably more than I possess. <laughs> I think uh, for a long time bands have uh, kind of ignored that. Like they've kind of like sat in that lane of like, oh, we're just going to do records. We're just going to release this way. We're only going to tour. And it's like they haven't taken advantage of all this stuff. And you have people that are, you know have blown up on TikTok, not necessarily making TikToks themselves, but their music will get put into them and kids dance or do whatever else or whatever. And that that artist has blown up because, you know, their music was introduced to a giant group of people through TikTok. And there were no one. Exactly, it's what it's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I don't know how familiar you are you are with K-pop, but yeah. that's like kind of dwarfing much of what was the big thing a few years ago. I mean, even though it's from another country with a whole different culture, I mean, I, I would say they're probably even bigger in America than most American bands now. And I saw that 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 came out would seem like it came out of nowhere but a few years ago i was in korea and there was some some performers on the street just basically doing the whole k-pop uh boy band kind of thing and they were they were good i mean they were most some of them were singing some were lip-syncing and they were doing these amazing dance things out on the street they had hundreds of people all just flocking around them and it was a cold november night and it didn't matter. I mean, they, I I had not seen that kind of energy at a at a rock show in, in in years. Yeah. And it was also one thing I also see think is very crucial. It was at least half or more women in the audience. Um, if you if you uh, if you see an audience that's like going crazy, but it, it's all it's all guys or only a handful of women, and and it's just like all the guys being guys, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably not going to get that big. Maybe, maybe 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. You would have like, but not anymore. I mean, that's, it's kind of like boys night out. It's kind of, yeah. they're going to, going to listen to their favorite metal band and beat the hell out of each other. But that, that's a dying, that's a dying culture and dying art form. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the audience is going to be like 40 or 50 years old now. Yeah. No, I totally 100% agree with all of what you said today. So like and most of what you say in your book, man, I love I love uh, going through that and kind of like my my main idea, since I'm coming at it from a, a kind of very different view of what a record label is probably going to be in the future. It I just really want to know more about relationships, because what was kind of golden about the punk era in the 90s was that uh, there was a kind of a sense of community about it. And about around the labels, even like, and I want to see how you could create that again, because that was really important to me growing up. Well, we can always learn more about relationships. Uh, And in fact, if we don't, they're probably going to suck after a while, even if they started out great. Um, That's probably the biggest learning experience that I I had out of the whole of the whole affair was uh, that you that I probably needed to pay more attention to relationships with people in general and with myself because you know I was the weak link. If if I'm not getting along, uh, if I'm not getting along with myself, then I'm not going to be a good partner or uh, 
on business or otherwise with other people. And that was kind of what happened when things started getting stressful. I reacted by becoming cynical and bitter and isolating myself from people instead of doing the opposite, which would be like, what is bothering me? What can I do to change it? And, and to make sure that I continue to get along with people better. Um, that's, you know, a lot of that is personal, but the thing is, and I'm sure you would probably agree as a, I guess you said you were, you have a family. Yeah. As a, as a, a, in your, within your family, it's probably very similar that from day to day, the needs of the various people in your family will, and the personalities will undergo some change. What, when, when you fall in love with somebody, you're falling in love with partly a person, but also partly an ideal of who you think or expect that person to be. And you're going to find out, A, that they're not quite exactly the same that you thought they were, and B, that as time goes by, they're going to change. Mm-hmm. And if you focus on that and say, oh, why are you changing? You're not the person I fell in love with. You're, you're going to forget that you're not the person you were either. You're going to, you're going to not notice that you're changing also. Um, and that will be even probably more true, for instance, with children who change dramatically from one month to the next when they're young. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's kind of, you kind of got to check it all the time and, and be, be aware of it. And, you know, the, obviously the relationship between a band and a label is not as intimate as that of a family, but it's not completely different. Just like I, I've said many times, being in a band with people is like being married to several people at once, you know, and it's hard enough to keep a single uh, marriage, to get a marriage between two people fresh and going along smoothly. Imagine three, four, five people. Yeah. You know, you all have to get along and respect each other's needs and, and values without giving up too much of your own. Um, real delicate balancing act. You know, similarly... If you want the label and the band to get along, you, you've got to recognize that the, the band who were 18 or 20 years old when they signed and put out their first seven inch are not the same people who have sold a few million records and now have families and extended families of their own and business empires to concern themselves with. Mm-hmm. Definitely true, man. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and listening. I do have... One last question. Uh, what is your favorite release that you've ever done? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a silly... I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disparaging. It's oh, no. a little bit silly. It's kind of, how many children do you have? Three. Which one is your favorite? Exactly. <laughs> However, there are a couple that I'm, I've written and said many times I'm particularly proud of and they're ones that are not popular mm-hmm. not super popular they are they are the brent's tv seven inch which probably only sold 1500 or two that one of our lowest sellers of all but which and the nuisance album which did a little bit better but should have been massive it should have been as big as nirvana but wasn't uh, for a variety of reasons both of those i especially treasure because they wouldn't have been heard if it weren't for lookout and but maybe even more so because they represent a certain time and place and culture 
It was just a homegrown culture up in uh, the north coast of California. That that it just uh, it it just was unique and did did its own thing and produced its own style of music and its own slang and its own value. And it's you know it's almost completely gone now. It just came and went in a brief time. But to me, that was one of the most valuable things about doing a label or doing anything in, in media is. You know, it's kind of being a historian and, and saying, here was this amazing thing that happened and, and you get to be part of it, even though we were born 20, 50, 100 years later on the other side of the planet. But here's what some people were doing and maybe you can relate to it and be inspired to do something equally amazing wherever and whenever you are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I love the internet for that fact, just because, you know, in the 90s, you know, we just had to kind of wonder, like, what happened between certain band members or whatever else between, you know, first Green Day's album that I had. And second, you're like, wait a minute, what happened? What happened to Al? You know, <laughs> or what happened to John? Like, what's going on? Like, and I didn't have to have waited until I found it in a magazine, maybe two or three years later, I was reading through, oh, there's an actual interview with him. So it's kind of crazy that we can go we can see documentaries and things i just watched the other doc the turn it up a documentary the other the other day and it's kind of nice to be able to like relive that and see even more than what you saw then so i thank you so much for being on is there is there anything that you're up to right now that you'd like to plug i know you got the uh the blog Uh, well i haven't been keeping up with my blog lately i feel bad about that because a friend a friend recently helped me upgrade it and get it running more smoothly but uh, most of my time lately has been going into writing my next book, which is about halfway done, at least through the first draft. Nice. And of course, we just re-released all of the uh, Potatoman discography on Don Giovanni in, in digital form only. Mm-hmm. But we, in the course of doing that, I found a bunch of tracks that I had kind of forgotten about or didn't realize were ready to release. So a bunch of stuff. I don't know if it will reach an audience or not, but it's it's there. It was very frustrating for quite a few years in the digital age, like on Spotify and all those kind of platforms. There were no potato men at all. Um, mm-hmm. I was sure that there was at least some people that would like to hear it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But, you know, the book is taking uh, pro- uh, prominence right now. Oh, and uh, I'm studying Chinese. That's my other big thing. Uh, well, studying languages in general, but Chinese is the main focus. Mm-hmm. I've been on it for a few years now. Yeah, Finally getting to the point where I can watch a Chinese TV show and make some sense of it. Not a lot, yeah. but stuff. Yeah, <laughs> for, for whenever I get back to China, I hope, well, assuming that it ever happens, I, I hope to be able to have many rewarding conversations. Mm-hmm. It's a, It's like entering into a whole different uh, world, a whole different universe almost, because in order to speak another language, especially one that's very different from our own, we need to, to think in a different language and have, a, and have a whole different philosophical outlook, which is kind of like, uh, you know, when I was young, when they first traveled into outer space, they were up, in, up until that time, it was only science fiction, the idea that people could go up in space and go from one planet to another and that. Um, and this will sound weird maybe, but, you know, we were always taught in school, oh, you know, the, the world doesn't look like it, but it, the world is round. And 
but you could looking around you say, oh, it's flat to me. Um, but I know all the teachers and everything says it's round, so it must be. But until the first rocket ship went out into space and took a picture and, and of, of the planet, of, Earth, of the planet Earth, yeah, wow, that's us. We really are round. And it took on a whole different uh, meaning, a whole different reality. And this is kind of what it's like you know, being able to immerse yourself into another frame of thought, another frame of reference, like a different language. It's, you get a sense of perspective. Then you not only understand that culture a little bit more, you understand your own culture a little bit more because you can see it from the outside looking in as well as the inside looking out. So extremely rewarding for me. I wish I had spent more of my younger life studying languages. Very, very cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on, despite all the technical difficulties, whatever. It's been awesome, and uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Always glad to have a chance to sound off about uh, ideas, some of them hopefully useful and others maybe not so much, but there they are. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. You have yourself a good night. Thank you, and you too. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing... Uh, where your, your enterprise goes from, from here and <laughs> as the world changes and, and as you do, uh, you know, I may be able to brag to people that I talked to you back when you were just getting started out. <laughs> well, thanks, man. <laughs> Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye now.